you know how we talked about how I was terrible at recording and stuff like that? I didn't mention this at the time, but um, I, and I recommend using the audio file I've recorded at my end on the mic, but I probably was about six minutes late starting the mic. I thought it was recording because <laughs> it was giving me those bars. It was giving me the bars going, and then about six minutes in, I went, are you kidding me? I haven't pressed record. So all that stuff I did with the sync lab, irrelevant. It wasn't recording. <laughs> Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm joined as always by my co-host Tim Curtis. G'day, Ben. And we have a particularly special guest on the show, Blake. How are you? Bronk. What is that? You're on a last name basis, you two. <laughs> For our listeners, um, due to my complete inability to text, uh, Hamish and I are now on last name basis. So I reached out and uh, introduced, my name is Pronk. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've sort of gone from there. It was lovely. I loved it. I mean, but I mean, it, it, for someone that, you know, that hasn't, um, I didn't even get to do cadets. So someone that hasn't got any military experience, it made me feel like I was like right into the fold straight away. <laughs> saying, Pronk here. And, I was, and, he's, and then like it was two minutes later, he sent a follow-up message going, sorry, I meant my name was, my name's actually Ben. Um, <laughs> And I was already very familiar with you guys because I have actually listened to your pod for a couple of years. I haven't listened to every episode, but it is one I've only got, I'd say, 10 that, I, that I'm in rotation for. And so funnily enough, like, you know, I think there's a, we've got a couple of threads that link us all. Mm. And, you know, and, and Dan, obviously, the, you, know, you, you know, Dan, he's your brother. Um, <laughs> also prong. Also prong. Um, you know, I, I know we've got sort of mates in common and we sort of know people in common. And so, funnily enough, when you know when the the when your book was coming out, um, you know the, the, the was contact made, and, and I was like, "Well, I've actually already pre-ordered it." Um, I, was like, I, I was in a funny situation. He's like, "Love to send you a copy." He's like, "Well, I'll take it," but uh, <laughs> I think I've got it on pre-order. And then, in a bizarre, like in a bizarre situation, because Booktopia looked like it had sold out, so I was like, "Look, I'm happy to wait. I'm excited to see the, the book." And then they arrived on the same day. So I just had to send a message going, this proves that I did buy it and I've got a copy for free. I will keep the copy that, Dan, that you guys wrote in the front of and I will gift the copy. That sell I the other one. We were, were pretty surprised and delighted to, to hear that you'd listened to the podcast before. Are we? Can we go out? Go so far as to say you are a, a long-time listener, first-time caller? I really am. I really am. Blake, <laughs> Blake reporting, reporting to do my bit on the content side rather than the consumption side. That's awesome. Look, we, as we were saying before the show, don't tend to script this, um, but oh, we... Speak for yourself. Tim does a lot of preparation. <laughs> but it'd be cool just to... can't s- see this, but yeah, Tim, Tim's got a teleprompter. <laughs> <laughs> this is very... And he's got, he's got two writers behind him. Two research assistants. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, all Tim's jokes are <laughs> very well researched. Um, but yeah, tell us about yourself. How did you get to be the Hamish Blake you are today? Have you been to India? 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 Well, you better get some of it, India. Have you been to India? There's shit that will blow ya. Good question. Um, broad, I mean, good, good broad beginnings. I mean, I, I would say it was a combination of, well, I mean, I suppose to define, like, the answer to that question, you'd be like, well, I suppose there's probably the Hamish that people know um, from what I do. Perhaps public, there's probably more public facing. I'd say there's like, you know, there's a persona and there's a person. Um, the, the, I guess the person side is probably infinite and we can get pretty, we could go quite deep in the weeds. But then, you know, professionally, how did it, how did it come about? I would say my professional career is a situation of, is a series of kind of happy accidents and a bit of an ebb and flow, I reckon, of like a lot of people, an ebb, ebb and flow of, Luck, luck is maybe the wrong word, but but I think it's a pretty close cousin of luck. I reckon just having the right risk appetite at the right time, maybe looking looking back on it, and I and I think I think for everyone that's probably true that throughout your career you 
you don't always have the same risk appetite. Like at some some points in your life, you're more likely to throw caution to the wind. And then other points in your life, you probably feel an impulse to consolidate a bit more on, on what you're doing. So, I mean, you know, getting into comedy was, a bit, I went like a pretty roundabout way. But everybody in our industry, there is just no, yeah. you know, it's, it's not quite like being a CPA, although that is also, you know, it's a, people probably have their own path to being a chartered accountant too. But there is no real degree, there's not really a, a common path. In fact, the only commonality I think everyone in comedy or in the entertainment industry has is it all happened differently for mm -hmm. everybody. So I started at uni, I was doing commerce science at uni, um, did not get it done, uh, didn't quite make it to the finish line, which I sort of forgot about until I did the questionnaire on the Resilience Shield. <laughs> and it was, it's funny because, I mean, we can talk about this later, but it, it it brings up quite a lot of ego stuff, I think. Yeah. I mean, maybe you get this feedback for people who are disappointed with their score, but at the same time, the point, you know, don't realize the point is not to get 100% so you can just close your laptop down and go about you. Like the whole point is to do work on yourself. But I, when I had to, I, I haven't answered that question for a really long time. Like what's the highest level of education you have? And as somebody that did, like I did pretty well at high school, I, I got like 98, you know, like 98, 99, like I scored very high. I was doing computer science and just had always had that image of myself as like the uni yep. guy that, that no no dramas getting into what I wanted to do at uni. But I forgot that that because you didn't finish, it's just technically high school's for you. So it's like, no, never got a certificate. Didn't, didn't, didn't do a diploma, didn't get, that's uh, no, just high school for me. So that was a funny one. I hadn't really thought that I hadn't, you know, well, I mean, I obviously know that I never graduated uni, but I'd never really thought about my education. And I, I did that thing that you do when you're filling out a survey going, I don't fit a lot of these holes. Like who does this survey think I am? Because I'm, I'm not, yeah. this is not the classic part. But I, I, I look, I had a great time at uni, but comedy was, I suppose, something I'd always been really interested in doing. And, I remember really early on saying to mates and stuff, like when I was kind of 18, 19, you know, when people go like, what's your dream? What do you want to do? I would often be like, well, I'll go to uni and I'll, I'll finish this and I'll, I'll like get a great degree or whatever. And, and, or, you know, like a, I'll get, I'll get some sort of, I'll get, hopefully, you know, get some sort of corporate job. And then what I'd really love to do, like once that's all settled and I've become a CEO, then I'd love to do stand up. Hmm. And then I think over time I just sort of realized, Oh, that maybe you should do the thing that you like first. Yeah. Like maybe you should, um, maybe you should actually, you should, you should follow your, the thing that you love. But it was never really a long term. It was always a very, very. It was just, a, it was probably just a, a series of short term horizons that I chased. Like it would be fun to do community radio, so we did that, and it would be like fun to do community TV, so we did that, and were terrible, but no one was watching, and then it would be fun. Then we could kind of got offered something on commercial TV, and we're like, oh shit, you, you know, you. You can't say no to that, even though we don't feel ready at all. And then you were sort of doing that. So just a series of stumblings, I reckon, rather than a grand plan. And after a while, you sort of look back and go, well, I guess we're doing this as a career. And and that's that's sort of, that was sort of the trajectory. Like it's, you know, it, then it was sort of various shows and then radio shows from there. And um, and it kind of brings us, you know, you could, it, without going into specifics about every single job I've had, I guess that was the, that was the common thread that it, it, most things were done on a six month to a 12 month horizon yep. and just sort of seemed like the right risk to take at that time. I've got to ask about your first stand-up gig. Um, a common friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, ex-regiment guy called Ken Studley, um, who's, who's done a little bit of stand-up comedy, and he describes his first show as more terrifying than any combat he's ever experienced. Um, he actually did a bit about a, a Shakespearean porno. It's actually a very funny sort of gig. <laughs> but um, he, he said it was terrifying. Uh, did you have the, a similar experience? Yeah, because you, you you know it's one of those art forms where you know what it is, but um, until you, there is no way to kind of practice it until you're in front of a stage, and so you're just in front of an audience on a stage for that first time. So even you know you can sit in, you can stand in your bedroom and stuff and like go over your material as much as you want, but it, it, the whole point of stand up is it's a dance with the audience. So it's it's like practicing dancing by yourself and then having a partner. You know it. It is basically like shadow boxing and then getting in the ring. It's very different <laughs> when you're with an audience and the whole, you know, the best stand-ups are the people that A, make it look effortless and then B, ride that that energy wave between themselves and the audience. And it's, it's probably not like it is. The other thing about stand-up is it's a real discipline. Like, you know, mm. I don't think there's a way to do stand-up that's not five nights a week and basically 
completely immersing yourself in being terrible for a long time yeah um and really sucking everyone does and even the greats are able to have that like you know that humility of going back and trying new material and are very at peace with being terrible but there's no expectation of like you know like a chris rock or a or a you know a jerry Seinfeld is going back to the drawing board and just every year going all right well that didn't work and it's about refining it refining it refining it and it's a it's a it is a it is a scare i mean i was i was pretty terrified getting up there that first time but then i also did have i also had a little something inside me going of all the things you could do mm. like of all the things you could try your hand at i had just had a little inkling enough of a tiny flicker of a flame to go you might have you know you obviously enjoy this being on a stage and you might you might have some tiny level of natural ability it won't get you very far like you still have to work but it's not nothing, you know, it was, a, it was a tiny flicker. And I think you've got to feel that tiny flicker too. And then hopefully it like doesn't completely go out on that first night. I love that, the taking the risk. And, and what are you afraid of that people won't clap? Exactly. Is that the worst thing that could possibly happen? Exactly. And you, and, and of course, no one wants to, no one wants to bomb, but you have, but it's the best thing that could ever happen to you. In fact, it's like, You'd like you said, you know, it, that's it. You know, that that is the whole sum of the night. It, people didn't laugh, and you weren't very funny, and it's just <laughs> not the end of the world. And no. and it, and it absolutely happens to everybody. Yeah. And I never did. I mean, I did a couple of years of stand-up stuff, and then we sort of went in different directions. And I stopped doing, like, I haven't done live stand-up, you know, since I was in my early twenties. We had a similar experience. We were on. We, we then got kind of like sucked up into the Channel Seven commercial television system, and we were like in on a sketch show. And there's a lot, lot more moving parts. That was like we were 22 and you're in television for the first time. And so much of what we were doing, you were basically going, well, I think, you know, you're making decisions because it seemed like the kind of thing that you should do. You were, there was, I think we were really detached. I certainly was like pretty detached from kind of listening to any sort of inner voice and kind of like following you. You, uh, yeah. you, 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 you're scared, you're young and you're like, well, I don't know what I'm doing in this industry. So I'll just do a bunch of stuff that it looks like you're meant to do. I'm not saying that I had a ton of, genius ideas that I didn't share with the world. You just you just have no experience and you're in the deep end. But then then that show got axed after five or six weeks. And that's another great that's kind of like bombing but on a in a in a very public um in a very public way. And two great things I reckon came out of that show getting axed when we were that young. A you 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 know you you face this fear and you guys talk about this in the book too like it's it's the perception of failure so much more mm. than the actual experience in the moment like you said like when you're bombing on on stage for example it's that perception of how you're going to feel that you're terrified of and then the actual reality it's not enjoyable but it's like people go home and they go about their, their life like no one's following you home from the gig like throwing rocks at you and <laughs> you haven't made enemies for life you know but in your mind that's how serious it is and same with TV, some of the TV show feeling, you think it's the whole world when you're in a TV show. And to some extent, people kind of have to feel that way to, to, to like people get absorbed in the show and stuff. And then, but, and then when it doesn't work, you think it's an, a massive disaster. And the reality is something was on TV that not enough people wanted to watch. And then it wasn't on TV anymore. <laughs> and it's just not a big deal. So it was a good, it was a great experience to go through. Thousand and five, and the Hamish and Andy show ran two episodes, and it was. Quite oh, no, it actually ran. I think it actually. I think it actually ran five or six. But I mean, that's not what in, my research know, assistant's telling me. Well, fair enough, but adjusted for inflation back then. <laughs> oh, so it, adjusted for two thousand and five episodes, and it, like in today's <laughs> currency, that's that. I was going to say it's actually kind of more like adjusted for deflation because. Okay. An episode, a show running for five episodes in 2005 was terrible, mm. which would be like modern day running for two. Things are a lot lower. Like I remember our ratings were like never before seen disaster, right? Like 600,000 or 650,000 was the overnight figure. And at the time people were like, you know, this is, guys, this is barely above test pattern. Nowadays with like how fragmented the media is, 
you'd be the number one show. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, the, like the, when we, we the, tell people we were axed at 650, like shows are still on air at 250,000 <laughs> these days. Well, on the theme of resilience, The Age described that few episodes as, quote, poorly executed, unquote. How do you come back from that? I mean, there's a real tendency, I guess, for most to go, oh, we flopped it. Let's yeah. not do that ever again. But you <laughs> you turned your attention to well, how do we improve? How do we learn from that and get better? And naturally, True. you've done a ton of TV since then. De- def- definitely as a young, like, you know, almost a kid, basically, which I feel like I was at the time, you are definitely your ego is hurt and... I think at the, at the same time, I agreed with the criticism of it like, <laughs> because it was poorly executed. And as the person executing it, I agreed. I was like, well, this isn't the greatest show I've ever seen. Like, there, there's a part of me that like fully understood the flaws as well of the show. So I, I think, you, you know, it wasn't like I was going to go arguing tooth and nail that it was a wonderful piece of television that deserves to be like in the Hall of Fame. I think there was a part of us that was like, A, you know, well, I was certainly like, I'd definitely take that on board. Some of that stuff just wasn't good enough to be on TV. Like, I think it, it told me, oh, I, 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 it's sort of where I can, I remember like an a, a kind of a, a mindset beginning being like, well, no one does, you don't deserve to have a TV show. You don't deserve to have a radio show. Like, it's not your right um, to have these outlets. You got to be good. Like, you have to be, you got to be putting something out there that, like, we all know the equation. It's commercial television, like in, in that world. So you have to do something that enough people are interested in that they'll sit through the ads. That's basically your job. And if it's not, you know, if it's something you're really passionate about not enough people watched, I think that's great too because it's like, well, you followed your heart and you put something great out there, but it wasn't for commercial TV, but it probably got a home somewhere else. And But at the same time, if you were doing something to like be broad and it wasn't broad, then... I don't know, you just didn't do your job and there's some truth to that as well. So I kind of agreed with the criticism, but then also, you know, I think that was our early days. I probably had not heard or read um, Man in the Arena at that stage, but I reckon that's when you be, that was my first taste of like, that was my first taste of something dawning on me where I'm like, oh, okay, there's, you can either, you can create stuff and that can be judged or you could judge stuff. Yep. And without going to, you know, without going to, be too harsh like there is a line there there's there's a fence and you can be on the side of the fence that are putting things into the world but they but you have to take a risk and you're pretty exposed or you can be on the other side of the fence where you're you're deciding if the things that the other people put into the world are good enough and i think there's just a part of me whilst you know you're hurt and you're mm. like definitely definitely you 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 tender after that i think there was a part of me that just was like well i think i want to i'm pretty happy to stay on the side of the fence that puts things into the world i love that and I am increasingly really interested in that line. You know, you hear all these things, grit, never give up, and all that sort of stuff, and the man in the arena, not the critic who counts. But by that same token, you still want to take on board the criticism and and you want to sort of temper. And I find that really interesting, that you want to have that that unconquerable soul that's going to keep going and and progressing towards what you believe in. But you also need to have the open-mindedness, which you pretty much just alluded to, to take that sort of stuff on board and modify and adapt. I mean, it's not just this blind sort of self-belief in the face of you know, things that actually suck. It's It's an ability to learn and adapt as well as having that grit. It's an interesting line, isn't it, too, because you... Yeah, you, you like you know, grit and is not the same as pig-headedness of yeah. just going, I'm right and any critic is wrong. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's that. I don't think that's the message of the man in the arena either. I don't think it's, it's like going, you know, no matter, you know, it's not saying no matter what you did in the arena is flawless and no one could ever say, you know, if if you know, literally, I think it's a rodeo. Um, you know, if you can't be like, well, even if he only stayed on the horse one second, we're counting that as a win. Yeah, it's not the point is that 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 guy stepped in. And I think it's just that, like, if that's the thing, it's like, yeah, you can definitely do better, but you're not doing better for the guy in the stands telling yep. you to do better. You're figuring out a way to do better for yourself. And this is, I mean, we draw our podcast title from a Rudyard Kipling poem. There's a line in If that says, right. if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, yet make allowance for their doubting too. And I mean, that's probably mm. that balance, balance, isn't it? That's it. Yeah, I think it's that, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really fine line, isn't it? Like, you know, so coming out of that experience or any failure, right? Let's say you're in a movie and people hated it. But you were like, oh, I think there were some parts of that that were great. 
your response to want to do better the next time matches up with the, the criticism. So you can empathize a little bit with the criticism, but you're not, I suppose it's that thing of like, you're not changing because of the criticism. It's, you might have some common ground with the critics, <laughs> but it's that they're not the, uh, they're not the catalyst for you changing. It's, it's, it's coming internally. Mm. Your pronouns that you use in your career trajectory are quite interesting. There's a lot of we, us, our, and people would naturally associate Hamish with Andy and Andy with Hamish. Where did you first cross paths? And asking this second question for a friend, how can you sustain a friendship and a professional relationship over an enduring period of time? Yeah, look, great question. I suppose I, suppose I, I often use the, the we pronoun because... It's funny because, yeah, I, I don't want to talk on Ando's behalf because I'm sure his experience w- w- was similar and we've obviously talked about it for decades. So we know we've had similar experiences, but but by the same token, you're right, he would certainly have different reads on things, um, which is great. That, that would be his story. It's funny being in a, in, a, in a duo, like we kind of often laugh about, like, you know, when, once we realise what was going on and you're in radio and stuff and you realise that, like, the part of what you do like we sometimes like you know i'm often jokingly referred to as like we've we've like weaponized a friendship where like this is that's the product like we were mates and then we you know we sort of picked the bits that were working and that that kind of starts becoming the actual product you're making and and putting on air and it's not you know we worked pretty hard i think to keep what we did being authentically who we both were and how we felt but by the same time, I'm probably, you know, when you're doing Hamish and Andy, I'm a certain kind, I'm a certain version of me. I don't think it's too far from who I am, mm. but you're a certain version because you're actually in a rhythm. Like we're, we're in, a, in a comedy duo in particular, like it's so much about um, telepathy and, and and unspoken rhythms. And I suppose any partnership, like any partnership stands the test of time where you're doing something professionally well together. Ours is just very strange mentally because you're being friends professionally or you're <laughs> having a laugh with a mate professionally <laughs> so it's a very it's a so, so you're doing all this stuff that you would do in your like normal recreational life but you're doing it with a kind of a you also put applying a professional lens to it to make sure you do it right and you look after each other i think we we realized early on like if we're too we don't want to let's not do this thing where we're too different to who we are because if we yeah if it is a facade it's inauthentic oh it's in it's inauthentic i think it's a bad it's just not going to work like it's no one wants to hear people that are inauthentic but also it's very labor intensive it's and so i think good. i think yeah. Ando and i we're not lazy but we're big fans of efficiency <laughs> this will be terrible if we are not ourselves like we're playing characters this is i, I, I can't say this make at the end of the week so like, we have to kind of set that trajectory now to be who we are and i think over time we've both really changed as people but still you know, main, as we, you find your own voice as you grow up, which everybody does between the age of 20 and 40, mm. to varying degrees. Like you obviously changing a bunch as a person, but still managing to kind of shift and grow as people on, on both sides of the equation. But but when it comes together, it still, it still works. So, what you know, a, a, a comedy duo or a comedy partnership, in my humble opinion, from what I've kind of learned, and how to do that dance over the last 15, 20 years. Our particular version has something to do with mateship, but I, I think I think everybody's duo would be different. I reckon if you if you lined up, you know, a hundred double, a hundred people that have worked closely with someone else, it, there would be similarities in some kind of the, some of the philosophies that maybe people share, but everyone's dance is different. Everyone's energy is really different. And because the thing, whatever it is that people like about Hamish and Andy is kind of unique to us and we can never be some other duo. And, you know, like we could never look at Lano and Woodley or something and go, God, let's do what they're doing yeah. because it's just not your voice. So we sort of have this weird Voltron where combined <laughs> we create this one thing. Having said that, I don't think I've got asked this question. I might have been talking about this with a mate the other day, and I was like, "It's not essential that you have to be best mates. In fact, like you want to be, you know, you if you want to have a talk, if you want to have a laugh with someone, go to the pub. Like that's not that's you don't have to be best mates with your co-host. In fact, I think it's like a if you're doing this professionally and you mm. have a professional mindset, which means like no matter how you're feeling, what day it is." 
what else is going on when the mics go on you've got a job to do and you've got a you've got a feeling to find together and you've got a rhythm that you've got to find together that's your job and that's what you do professionally you know it's not it's just being friends with someone is that's that's what you do outside of work like yeah, you can, yeah. we're lucky that we have both but i know that there's a lot of people who work together especially in radio on air who i think are terrific together and people and then they might not hang out tons well, they might not even be friendly outside of work. And I think sometimes people are disappointed to hear that, but I hear that and go, well, I kind of think it's even more of a testament to their professionalism to that they can them. find on any given day, they can find the rhythm. And the thing that they put into the show is not, it isn't just their normal friendship that, that someone happened to record. Like it's something that they're working on and, 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 and there's always a professional respect there about how to create whatever it is you're creating. So. Also, I think I lost the mic there for a sec. So yeah, funny. I like Ando and I are great mates, and and but we've also got a huge separate so, so yeah. social life outside of outside of the show. We're constantly in contact, and you know we we do catch up and we do like each other's company, and we also just have a shared history of stuff that no one else would ever understand except us. Some weird things that we've gone through. But having said that, I, I would say my you know my friendship group then is also critically important to me outside of Ando mm. because that that also sort of helps shape who I am for when we're doing our thing on the mics. Very, I, I mean, I've been thinking, we wrote in the book about this idea of role and identity and how you've got a number of different identities. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately and this idea that you'll have a, what they call a biographical identity, which is the narrative you tell yourself, you've got a biological thing and then you've got a social thing and, and all of them kind of change and they kind of ebb and flow in this Venn diagram. But the one I find really interesting is that uh, particularly for someone like yourself in the public eye, you'll have this kind of fourth identity, which is the way people see you. And yeah. it must be, I think, really interesting that that may or may not be exactly how you see yourself and it, it may or may not be this thing over which you have any control. Is it is it yeah. kind of weird? You, you spoke about person and persona before. Is it is it sort yeah. of weird uh, people have an expectation of you from what they've seen on TV that may not necessarily be 100% you? I mean, it is, and it, is, it is a strange phenomenon to go through. Um, I, it, I'm probably well practiced at it now, but it is. A, it, I, I do. I do understand that it's not normal to walk down the street and to have fifty percent of people know who you are, and and you know that with that comes um, a whole raft of like biases and expectations and memories. And I don't know if like someone could be looking at me going, oh, that's, that's, "That's a guy I saw," you know. 10 years ago on TV and that's the last time I saw him. Oh, that's a guy that I saw on Instagram this morning. You just don't know what yeah. frame of reference they're coming from too. I suppose if you've done a bunch of different things that could have conceivably been picked up, or you might just look like someone they went to school with, which is which happens too. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, oh, you probably watch Lego Masters. And they're like, no, no, no. Oh, sorry, I thought you guy called Jeff from my biology class. <laughs> so, so you just haven't, you know, there's a lot of different reasons people could be looking at you. I guess I just have a few more likely answers to why someone, you know, is, is, is looking at me. And so when people meet you, like, yes, it is a strange thing. I suppose you're talking about like lack of loss of anonymity. And that's that. In one hand, that is, it's just an odd phenomenon. I don't think mm. it's particularly good or bad. I've always regarded it, you know, where I sort of put it mentally is, it is just a. It's kind of a cost of doing business, and it's not a terrible cost of doing business either. It's a, it's a byproduct, I suppose, of what of the career I chose, and to get to do fun stuff on TV and to get to have a radio show and 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 sort of pursue the kind of the, the, the ideas and the stuff I wanted to do in the entertainment industry. As a byproduct, people will know you, especially in the commercial sense, you know, the whole, you don't get to keep your job unless a bunch of people yeah. watch the show. And to me, that's kind of like, let's say something like Lego Masters, that's a really fun show to do. And I don't really care about the ratings, but it, 
but the prize you get for it rating well is you get to do it again. <laughs> like yep. that's, mm. that's how commercial radio on TV works. If you rate it high enough, you get to do it again. And it's a really fun job. So that's like, well done, you get to do it again. But, but the process of doing that is like a bunch of people will watch it and see it. So I, I view it as kind of a byproduct. I, I am also eternally, like I don't want to ever sound like I'm complaining because I, you know, 99.99999 repeating percent of interactions I've ever had are kind and positive and fun. Mm. I'm lucky that I'm in a predominantly people would know me from something that maybe they've laughed at or have enjoyed. I'm not like, you know, I'm not a divisive footy yeah, player yeah. like who would have a whole different kind of fame where someone's like, oh, yeah, you're, you're, you're a thug or whatever. Like, you know, I'm, there's just, you know, there are tons of people that I'm sure just don't like what I do, but I don't think I, it doesn't invoke outrage. They just don't watch. They're just not <laughs> yeah. a fan. And so they're the people who just wander past me on the street or perhaps when I'm out of earshot, don't, I think because of the cargo. <laughs> but that's, that's, that's okay. I don't, the people that do bother to come up and say something are overwhelmingly, it's a fun interaction. And I enjoy They'll have a, they will more often than not have a funny memory or will bring up something that's resonated with them. And I actually find it fascinating to see what lands for different people, mm. like what sticks in people's brains from different things that I might have done or that the, our, our show might have done. And so, in that sense, I'm, I, I get it. It's just a byproduct of my work. I know, I know they don't know me, and, but I can't expect them to either. Like, the, I don't, I'm not. The, the, I know that the version of me that goes out is, is you know, pretty much it's skewed to entertaining. Like I'm doing most things for a laugh. So that's not how I live my entire life. I, I do love laughing, but, but I'm also, I'm, you know, I can't be too bummed if someone doesn't walk away with like a complete four-dimensional, um, you know, analysis of my personality because they recognise me from that video where I got my my ass bitten by a fish or something. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other funny thing about identity, and this is one we've encountered a lot through our colleagues, is when your role and your identity become the same thing. There's no air yeah. gap between what you do and how you see yourself, and that can end pretty poorly. And, you know, we see professional athletes have issues when they can no longer play and certainly ex-soldiers and that sort of stuff. Um, do you sort of fight to keep a little bit of yourself outside of that that sort of public eye to, to keep that totally. bit that's going to be sustainable for the rest of your life? Yeah, totally. And I think fatherhood changed that a lot for me too. Um, not not that I, you know, like I suppose too, you know, it helped, it helped reshift that focus of um, probably beginning in me a, a bit more of an exploration into going, okay, well, I do this silly thing for a job, but, you know, who am I? But the question we're all asking ourselves, like, who, who are we? What do we do? What do we like doing? Um and and the answer to a lot of those questions is like several different things, I suppose. And probably for my twenties, I was pretty wrapped up in in role and identity. I don't think to I don't think it was like you know flawless by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think it got as bad as it could get. And I think doing predominantly doing it with a friend to help kind of keep us a bit balanced. You know, especially there are some train wrecks in the entertainment industry or some horror stories where you completely understand what happens you know suddenly people are famous they've got tons of money they've got a swirl of people around them telling them they're incredible and you just get untethered from reality so i think i think in our in our 20s we were lucky to have each other doing it as a duo but having said that you know you were pretty you were driven by that was probably a lot of ego like at the core of it it was you know you're excited to do things and you're excited to the more successful it was and then and then I think as you, I think definitely fatherhood was a was a real obvious kind of prick in that bubble of going oh you know this is you're not gonna you don't you're not gonna teach your kids how to be good humans by showing them YouTube clips of funny things you've done that your identity to the outside world has nothing to do with your identity as who you are as a human being hmm. and um, and that probably be you know that's probably where I started to to kind of go all right well in in you know in in this um in this position as a father in this role as a dad um you know you start to think about a lot, a lot more about who you are actually at the core of at the core of it
about who you are you've also seen operational service including deploying to Afghanistan why did you feel it necessary to go across and how did you find it well it's, a, it's actually a really good question because it, it we went in 2007 to town count we I reckon that the you know my mindset one month before going over was completely different to my mindset a month coming having come back or the day we got back I think at first, when we were asked by Forces Entertainment, who you know run the entertainment mm-hmm. tours through the through the um, you know Iraq and Afghanistan, initially that they, they were sort of like, hey, you know, would you guys come over and do a stand-up tour? Which a, 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 a few people had done by that stage, and we're like, well, we were very much in a mindset at that at, at that stage on the radio show of doing big kind of adventures. We loved mm-hmm. trying to do things on the radio show that people had not done on radio, and when this when this sort of floated across our producer's desk, I think we all sort of went, you know, geez, there's could there be a greater adventure? Like this is amazing. We've got we've got the opportunity here to go to a place. So I mean, really, being really, really honest here, I reckon 80% of the draw was like, wow, this will be this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity mm-hmm. to go to a place where we, you know, if, if we're in the middle of a war, like we don't really have any business being there. But we and then the 20% was like, and we would love to do something for the troops. We'd love, I'm sure there's stories to be told. You know, we've, we've been in that conflict now for a long time. And it was that thing of going, could we show a different tape? As you guys, you know, obviously I don't need to tell you, like for years and years, the the news out of Afghanistan would ebb and flow. Like it just, mm. there was probably like months and months where you would see nothing on the news, but yet our country is deployed. Mm. So... I think the, the attraction was like, what, what, what will we find over there? What will we see? But we had no, I had, I personally had no connection to the military, and and I had a really, I'll be the first to admit, and I, I you know, spoken to mates about it before that, are, that you know, that are in the military, like just a really one-dimensional view of who we might meet serving overseas. I mean, without wanting to be too crass about it. I reckon we would be like guys from Queensland that like guns. I think that was like, you know. Like, that is actually like both of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That is both of us. You know, well, we just said we hadn't even thought about it. Like no one asked. I didn't really think about it. And 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 from the get-go though, so, you know, when we when we landed and we were in, I'm pretty sure we can say this, like, you know, we landed in Kuwait and we were kind of picked up from the airport and, and taken to the airbase by the, the by Aussies. Even then straight away, we were like, oh, this is obviously completely different than what I thought this was going to be. And and I think we were blown away, you know, by the, within hours, we were like, oh, this is like the, the 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 military personnel that we came in contact with. It really, it really, it was a great lesson for me, number one, just in terms of like, you know, preconceived notions versus the actuality. It was a great, I think it was a great growing up experience for me too, because I was still probably like, you know, 26 and stuff and just a great moment of going, Oh my God, you have no idea what you're talking about. And, and you know, like the, the audacity to think you could know what to expect to find in a place like that with people that were doing the job that you guys were doing. Uh, it was very humbling, I think, straight away just to go, um, you know, everyone we met to a T, we realised are there through a sense of service, through a sense of patriotism and, and are operating this highly, insanely to us, dangerous, like, surreally dangerous um, environment through extremely selfless motives and and it's every person to a T. And I reckon that really that really affected us to just go, oh, you know, maybe we went with the, the idea that we were going to have some great radio shows and it would look cool to be somewhere like that you weren't, that you didn't often hear radio shows being. But I think by the by, you know, within hours of us being on the ground, we were just very keen to mm. do the best job we could for everyone that we met, um, both on the way to Tarrancat and in Tarrancat, to kind of tell the story, to try and bring a little bit of Australia to 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 the men and women there, and then to broadcast back to Australia the realities of what we were seeing on the base mm. and the people that we were seeing do the job. As we began our journey, we were secretly pooing our pants. We had been told to put on our body armour and board a C-130 Hercules with 60 other soldiers bound for one of the most dangerous places in the world. Shit. We are about to 
go to Afghanistan. This is the closest thing you can get to a Kentucky tour in this part of the world. Just like Hillary Clinton, we sprinted from the plane under sniper fire. Now, speaking of danger, you also confronted arguably the most dangerous enemy that can be found in Afghanistan, non-alcoholic beer. And you decided you were going to see how many non-alcoholic beers you could consume until you vomited in a bucket. We got to air and celebrated with a few non-alcoholic beers. I discovered that 14 in an hour and a half is too many. The near, the near beers, I think I think, because <laughs> I think there must be something, that these are the beers that Heineken make that are on the base and, and there must be some, for some reason, they still have 0.2% alcohol. That's what, that's what attracted us. We were like, oh, here we go. So they're not actually 0%. <laughs> Like there's still, there must be like in the fermentation process or they just can't get rid of all the alcohol. And so I'm like, right. So it's like when you're a kid and you discover that vanilla essence has alcohol in it. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. We can do something with this. <laughs> or methylated so, spirits, pour it through a loaf of bread. Wasn't that fancy? <laughs> and so as, and so I was like, oh, well, well, let's do the maths on this. If uh, if a regular beer, let's say, you know, is four and a half, five percent, how many of these guys are I going to drink to, to get the equivalent of one beer in me, which is about, you know, it's about 20, it's about a slab, we reckon, <laughs> um, before you've had the equivalent of one stubby, except then, I mean, this is where we need some more medically minded on, you, as soon as you drink one, obviously your body's then processing that alcohol, so it's not quite the same as having uh, one You've got the time, yeah. You've got the time. <laughs> the time, <laughs> the time speed distance calculation. You've got the, like the half-life of alcohol <laughs> leaving your system, so like, can you get enough in you to chase down the half-life? <laughs> <laughs> and I, so how many did I drink? I remember drink. I must have had because I remember I drank five liters, and so that's roughly 15, 15 near beers. Powered through the bed. I, was, I had to get to twenty four, and I think you know I've done a lot of eating challenges in my life. There is just a moment where you know the maths doesn't add up. Like your body, you just you just know. Like yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things when you hear about an eating challenge. Like if I said to you, oh, you got to eat a you know one kilogram schnitzel and five hundred grams of chips. Depending on when you last had your last meal, you'd be like, well, I feel like it's probably doable. Do yeah, like, yeah. Yes, yeah, I'm pretty hungry. Like, so whenever anyone hears about a challenge like this, human nature is to go, I think I can do it. But there comes a point where your body just will not take any more in. And that's, um, you know, you can't fit two litres of milk in a one litre milk container, even if you really want to, and even if you're really squeezing just, it in their heart. It's just physics. It's just yep. physics. So that's about five litres is where my body um rebelled and, and i was freezing too because i drank it really quick and it, and we were like we, we set up a, we had a little bunker that we did the show next to and we're kind of in the shade too and i can't remember what month it is i think it was around april in in afghanistan so it's like so it's starting to get a little bit cold and i was just freezing from drinking that much liquid so fast i really i think i think yeah alcohol poisoning wasn't a threat but hypothermia was like i was just jackhammering like it just did something very weird to my body it reminds i just thought we had a colleague at the royal military college so our officer training who a similar thing uh it was called the paddle pop challenge a guy called badger mcgann and <laughs> one paddle pop every hour for 24 hours which sounds pretty doable yeah, I like this. But um, it ended up with him at hour 22 in a warm bath. Like, So his friends were, were helping, you know. Is that like, really, does it yeah. really mess you up that bad? He had to tap out and he was very sick. Hour 22? <laughs> yeah, so he, he powered through. It's funny, though. I find like, that fascinating because it's probably the sleep deprivation a little bit too of having to stay awake like on that clock, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like you guys not are not to mention the 20 that. teaspoons of sugar per paddle pop. Yeah, that's right. They're so not, it was awake and jacked up. But they're actually not too bad. I mean, I'd have to double check this, but I'm pretty sure a paddle pop's about 100 calories. So it just can't be that much sugar. Because I only know this because as a dad, you know, you're doing, you're constantly doing a list at the ice cream thing of like yep, picking yep. The, the least possible evil ice cream. But I'm like, well, paddle pop's not too bad <laughs> in terms of calories. Good old film. So it's it's like, you know, if you were, if you were like jogging, you know, if you, you know, it's, yeah, it's two and a half thousand calories, not the end of the world in terms of like energy expenditure. Mm-hmm. 
It is doable, actually, when you think about it. I mean, I'm hearing this and I feel like it's doable. <laughs> but again, that's that's exactly what leads you into doing these challenges. Correct. And your mate's probably listening to this going, yes, I know, I know, it sounds possible. <laughs> that's awesome. right, that's why like, I spent two weeks in hospital, yeah. <laughs> me, me, and Andy, <laughs> me and Andy have tried and failed so many eating challenges in our time to, because we just get sucked in with this idea of like, I think this is the one. I think this is one. Like, you know, 60 wings in 60 minutes. And you're like, I love wings. But win a minute. It's just not that hard. And it isn't until wing 33. And then you realize you have a ton of chicken in you. And it just, it's just not going anywhere. It's like 17 whole chickens worth of, of, of you know, yeah, you wings. Don't actually, yeah. You don't want to think about all the birdless chickens walking around going, oh, really? They did it for amusement. Did that? Was there also spicy sausage in Germany? Do I remember that correctly, that you decided yeah, you wanted to go right down the spicy end of the scale? Oh, don't worry about the paddle yeah. pop at the left-hand end. Let's go no, spicy at the right. I uh, I mean, I knew this. It was the, I knew I was in trouble with that one. I can't handle spicy at all. Like, I, I you know, I've, I've been known, my eyes have been known to water being at the table with someone's having very hot food. So um, I knew I was in real trouble, and Andy found this this bratwurst that was the, the, the hottest the hottest sausage in the world. And it kind of, it comes with like the sauce and, you know, the Scoville units. And it always worries me because I've been to a few restaurants like this, like Annie stitched me up a few times in over the journey. We've just given me the hottest thing on earth. And they, what they love doing is showing you the, the scale of like where it sits in terms of like how hot they are. And the unit is Scoville's and they love going, you know, this is 3 million and right down here, at 400,000 is mace. And so you I <laughs> always love showing you where mace sits and to get it in your head that what you imagine is like several times hotter than pepper spray. Well, there's a, there's a girl in WA whose brand is Shit the Bed Hot Sauce, which has been incredibly successful. She did a crowdfunding yeah, round. Because that's the other thing. That's the thing that you never see on camera is the 24 hours later. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Once the, once the laughter dies, that's when the tears begin. Well, I mean, you're thinking things going full circle. It's funny you mentioned those near beers. They're now a thing. Like, you know, these non-alcoholic beverages. Oh, isn't I'm, I'm that, that, yeah, that yeah. ad on the Heineken ad where he's parked in the non-parking zone or whatever. And I remember just thinking these were, like, they were the butt of a joke. It was almost Huge. like this big sort of fuck you to, to people who were, you know, it's like not only can't you drink, but we're going to give you these ridiculous <laughs> sort of... Versions of beer look exactly like a beer, <laughs> a beer that you would love to have. Yeah, was, it did say we did, it, we did find that like a little bit taunting, yeah. But yeah, you're right now, zero alcohol beer is yeah, I, the first time I've ever heard of it. Like, we, mm. I remember we were pissing ourselves going, I, I can't believe this is a thing. They do say a lot of technology comes out of war, you know, prosthetics and weapons and computers. You know, maybe this was <laughs> an early adopter thing. It wasn't long before we came face to face with the harsh realities of war. Man down, unfortunately. I've been hit. Jesus, you always think it's going to happen to someone else. Yeah, but what's happened? Oh, pretty bad blister. Back in my left foot. A blister. Do you need to knock me out? What is it, this one? Am I going to lose my foot? Oh, oh, be army tough. So I guess I just uh, play ping pong for a while now at Forest Gump. When the shots crack around you, you remember the high. But it wasn't excitement. Fucking terrifying. The steel tears through clothing, mud walls, trees, and flesh. And I emptied my bag towards nothing at best. And as I crawled forward and I looked through the sights, I turned and saw Rowdy give a wink and a smile. He shouted with me as he sprung to his feet with his gun up and firing out into the green and the dirt. Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. 
You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60.